Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of uh, Tennis with an Accent. This is Sakib. Uh, today we have the honor of hosting uh, uh, Carl Bialik, uh, who is a you know, very objective voice of tennis on Twitter. Uh, if you follow him, you know you know his uh, commentary is uh, very reasonable, doesn't offend many fan bases, and still has the art of uh, conveying the point uh, across. Welcome, Carl. Thank you. Very kind words, and glad to be on the show, I'm a fan. No, it is. Uh, I mean, your podcasts are, you know, uh, a refreshing source of uh, tennis commentary and kind of has a different theme as it, as you cover uh, different roles and players uh, in tennis who work in tennis. So it's uh, really uh, a good takeaway for anyone like me who's a student of the game, and it's uh, really a good experience listening to you. So let's get started. I know you're at the Open, so uh, just a little intro for someone like me who knows, uh, you know, your tennis commentary, but what's your connection with the sport? Uh, track your roots for us as a fan, and how did it all start for you? Sure. It all started as a kid playing. I grew up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan near the Central Park courts, and I would go out there and play quite a bit, especially with my father. Neither of us had much formal training. I don't think he had any, and I had about a year or two of lessons, but they didn't really take. So no one watching us would really want to watch us for very long or certainly not learn from our strokes, but we had a great time doing it, and it's it's a great scene. If anyone's ever in New York and has time, head to the courts in Central Park, and you'll really see people passionate about playing all ages, passionate about court time and who swept the court and who didn't. It, it's, it's a great slice of New York and of tennis and of New York tennis. Anyway, so really got into the game by playing. Uh, my father and most people I knew didn't follow the sport, but playing naturally made me interested in watching on TV and then I think in high school for the first time going to the Open. And it remained really just a, a side passion, not even my main sport for a while. But when I joined the Wall Street Journal, not at all as a tennis writer, I learned that the Wall Street Journal website would regularly send somebody to the Open just because it was in our backyard in New York and we were based in New York. And we would we would cover that tournament. It would be just about the only sports coverage we would do uh, outside of kind of aggregating other people's sports writing. And I asked to get, to get the credential and got to go, and that, that really sparked my love of attending tournaments and, and wanting to cover tennis more closely just because I, I found so many stories at a Grand Slam. I mean, you have the 128 players in each of the men's and women's singles draws, but there's so much more going on even besides those 256 players between doubles and juniors and wheelchair tennis and all the people who make the tournament possible. One of the most fun stories I ever did was I think at my first Open on a day full of rain delays, sort of like today's going to be probably, where uh, I just wandered to different parts of the grounds, found people spending the rainy day in different ways, and, and wrote little vignettes about them. So I think each tournament is kind of its self-contained universe, and I fell in love with, with attending and, and it, observing it from all sides. And it really took a step forward when I moved to London in 2012 and suddenly was in the same city as Wimbledon and Queens and World Tour Finals and a short train ride away from the French Open. So I got to really cover those tournaments regularly as well as go to some of the many other great tournaments around Europe and found ways to to cover them for the Wall Street Journal, then cover them for ESPN and 538 when I changed jobs. Now I'm not working in journalism, but I still moonlight occasionally doing some tennis work, including my podcast, which I'm generally doing on weekends called 30 Love. And I've been going to the Open this year as well. Um, you know, it's 
I, I've, I've never lived closer to the open than I have the last couple of years. So I have the the great pleasure for two weeks out of the year of just taking the seven train about 20 minutes, and I'm there, and uh, I'm going as much as I can. I'm glad you're sticking to it. Uh, I'm a fan, and I hope you continue to contribute because, like I said, you know, uh, your voice kind of adds up uh, the flavors in tennis, especially when uh, mainstream tennis establishment uh, uh, sometimes being questioned by a lot of objective fans. So let's get right into it. Uh, uh, do you think uh, with the big networks, uh, there's some sort of a, a lazy coverage? Uh, I know Federer is a story in the past, Serena is a story, and you know, Nadal, all these big names. So Federer was interviewed uh, a few days ago when he won his match against Cole Schreiber and a very important match with Keys and uh, Svitolina was going on. And ESPN decided to air that while fans ended up missing few more than few games of that match. So how do you see that as a fan? Forget uh, you're part of the media, but how do you see that as a fan and how objectively you can justify that kind of airtime? Well, I would I would not call anyone working in television, sports television, covering of live sports television, lazy in kind of the conventional sense of lazy. It's an incredibly demanding job. I was just listening to James Blake on yet another podcast inside the U.S. Open with Nick McCarville. He's been doing work for Tennis Channel, and he said what's been most surprising to him is how much more work it is. I mean, you have you can't just show up and call the match. Maybe sometimes it sounds like, let's say, John McEnroe does that. I don't know if he does, but in general, on average, these people are working incredibly hard to prepare and to cover the matches. They're dealing with the same uncertain schedules and 2 a.m. endings as the fans are and the players are, except they also have to start really early. I think there's there can be a kind of intellectual or, or judgment laziness in terms of – I think laziness is a harsh word for it. I, I think what can happen is if they have tried something and it works or if they know someone is a big name, it's easier – it doesn't take any less time, but it's easier for them to make the decision, well, everybody loves Roger, anything Roger on camera we're going to show, that's our rule, we're going to stick to it. If you decide instead, okay, we need to spotlight the match that's happening now because this is live sports coverage, I mean, it shouldn't be hard to spotlight Madison Keys. She should by now be a big name among American fans, but I think partly as a result of each of these little decisions incrementally disadvantaging people who aren't immediately known, you do end up with this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, the Williams sisters, Sharapova, maybe Azarenka when she's playing, maybe, maybe Wozniacki, where, where they sort of know those are the big names, those are the ones that people are going to want to see on camera, whatever, whatever they're doing. And therefore, if we always show them, they are going to become even bigger names and their lead over other players in terms of familiarity and fan interest is going to just grow. So it's hard to fault any one decision in the moment too much. I, I imagine that they have some judgment and experience behind it, but I would like them to, even just for their own self-interest, see that investing in live tennis of players who may not be as familiar and trying to get fans to be more familiar with them is worth it to them, as well as growing the sport and, and bringing more live, live tennis to fans. I, I also think this should be less of an issue every year because every year the, the kind of options for fans to be their own TV producers and directors and choose what they're watching through streaming and switching between courts, those options keep growing. So I think the best of both worlds is where the broadcaster can make those kind of easy standard decisions and 
you know, get maximize their ratings, maximize their value from the rights that they paid for, and hopefully then continue to pay for those rights and invest a lot in putting on a good show. And the fans who really want to see tennis are not going to be bothered by that because they'll never notice because they're just happily switching among courts and watching a court that maybe ESPN never would have shown. Yeah, I totally get it. And by lazy, I mean it's a choice. Of course, they're very uh, informed, and you know, most of them are former players, so they know the sport inside out. But uh, even with Federer, I think I'm a big Federer fan, but I try to be as objective as I can. Uh, I think uh, the narrative here is uh, when a live match is going on, but you, you know, kind of explain, uh, you know, what's a production assignment, and they want to capture everyone who knows something about tennis. So I can totally see why they want to air a big name interview while the match, but uh, I still, you know, wanted to just get your viewpoint. Uh, let's go back to your New York. I, I also think uh, sometimes, uh, just to just add sorry. one thing, I think sometimes where the fan thinks, okay, I want to see every minute of this match, the producer thinks this is early in a set, it's not actually that important a moment. I think that's just a very different mindset. Like, I'm certainly of the view of if there's live tennis happening, that's what you should be showing me. I'd rather mm-hmm. see doubles than see Chich at about the singles match that just ended. But... First of all, we all need to remember we're not necessarily the average viewer. The people who are actually, for their own enjoyment, recording podcasts probably aren't reflecting the average viewer and probably aren't the people that decisions should be made on the basis of their wishes. And also just that um, different people consume sports differently. Like if I'm watching a tennis match, I want to see the whole thing, but I do know people who can wander in and out without thinking much of it and really start to get focused when it's late in a set or late in the match. Okay, uh, fair enough. So, yeah, this uh, a question came to my mind while you were giving a New York background. Uh, I usually uh, go to the open and park in Jackson Heights, grab some Indian food, and I've been parking in the parking lot for a while. And this year, the guy recognized me, and he said, oh, you're here for the open. And uh, he said, back in the day, it used to be good, all Americans uh, dominated uh, with, you know, Sampras, uh, you know, Agassi, Capriati, and, you know, Davenport, and Williams are still there. So as a New Yorker, do you think uh, as much of a, center stage of the whole world, uh, New York is. Do you think people struggle uh, with the popularity of Federer and Nadal and uh, they want their own, or in New York you don't feel that wide? Yeah, it's, a, it's a great question. It's one I've been thinking about a lot. I mean, I think one of the things that probably wouldn't make a lot of sense if you drop someone from 1980 or 1990 who is a tennis fan into New York today and you told them that an American was playing for a chance at the semifinals last night and an American man was playing. When Venus Williams was playing for the semis last night, it was packed. But then Sam Querrey took the court. It was a lot emptier, and it just kept emptying out. And it was, I don't know, 5% full at the end of the match. If you told them that that happened, and that then tonight Roger Federer is going to play, presumably starting around the same time, maybe a little earlier, and that no one really expects anyone to leave, at least unless maybe he's, he's up two sets big on Del Potro, but even then, you know, I think we we just saw what Del Potro can do when he's down two sets. So this idea that some Swiss guy is going to be much more of a reliable crowd draw in New York than an American guy would be weird to people. I think a couple of things have changed. I think people have had time to adjust and um, time to recognize that's the new reality and so much exposure. I mean, when, when Federer's already 36 and has been near the top of the game now for 14 years, that's plenty of time for people to get used to him, and certainly they've seen him win this tournament five times but also make lots of deep runs. So lots of opportunities to get familiar with the guy, hear him say nice things about New York, see him in ads, see him on billboards, the relentless pushing by Nike. Like 
it, he's not he's a lot, much more recognizable name in New York these days than Sam Query for better or for worse. I think John Isner would say for worse. I think the other thing that happens is you just have these aren't going to be all the same people. So there might be people who checked out and we don't hear from because they said, you know what, I don't really care about tennis anymore because there is no Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras, even Andy Roddick. But there are so many new people that we might not notice because it will still feel crowded, but maybe it's a different group of people who are ready to embrace anyone no matter where they're from, which which I think is that, that's my preferred way of following tennis. And as you say, it's such an international city. So if slightly fewer people who are born in the U.S. and mostly just want to cheer for U.S.-born players, if slightly fewer of them are coming to the Open, that just frees up seats for all the Argentines and Argentina-loving people who were cheering madly for Del Potro the other the other night. So you, I don't think it's it's necessarily made an overall like aggregate impact, even if it's changed the mix of people who are who are passionate about coming to the Open. Yeah, 100% agree. When you attend the Open, I've attended many times, uh, many years in a row, and you don't feel tennis is like a uh, second-tier sport in the United States, but uh, it's a different conversation outside of a uh, tennis community uh, for a casual fan. Uh, fair enough. So uh, you've been attending the Open, so what are the big narratives, according to you, going in and first week and a half, what you've seen so far of these championships? Well, from a sort of meta perspective, like how the, the tournament's being run, the big story everyone's talking about is that they're running a tournament while they're a construction site, basically. They're they're a year away from being able to open the new Louis Armstrong Stadium, and the old one was demolished. And they knew that, so they built a temporary stadium, a temporary Louis Armstrong. And it's it's big, and it's being treated as the second court, but it really feels like a temporary stadium, albeit probably the nicest one anyone's ever seen. So, so that's that's pretty different and I think a testament to what the U.S. Open has done, especially in recent years, to become more fan-friendly, that, that it's working, that it, it seems like it, it hasn't negatively impacted the tournament. It's obviously not going to be as optimal as last year when they had the old Armstrong, the old grandstand, and the new grandstand all operating, and they had kind of a a um, embarrassment of riches of big stadiums to, to show tennis in. And next year, presumably, will be even better because the new Armstrong is scheduled to be open and it will have a roof. So so we're in this intermediate year, and the fact that it doesn't feel like any big change from last year is a testament to the Open. In terms of the, the tennis itself, the the obvious one on both sides, but especially the men's, going into the tournament was just the absence of players, that uh, Serena Williams was expecting a baby and, and actually had the baby during the tournament, so she obviously wasn't playing. Azarenka had a child earlier this year and is in a custody dispute, so she wasn't able to attend or said she couldn't attend. Um, and on the men's side, you had, before the tournament, Djokovic, Favrinka, Nishikori all dropping out, then Raonic, and then right after the draw was made, Andy Murray. So there are five World Tour finalists last year, five of the top men, all men who have done well in New York, three of them who have won in New York, all out of the tournament. And that also led to an unbalanced draw because Murray was going to feature in the in the bottom half of the draw with Federer Nadal on the top. After he withdrew, based on tournament rules, it was too late to reshuffle. And then Alex Verev looked like the star. And then the tournament began. And the big names, especially in the bottom half of that men's draw, started falling out. So Zverev and Chilich both lost in the second round, and suddenly it looked wide open. I think all eight 
Louisa Thomas of the New Yorker had this stat that all of the last eight men in the bottom half, so all eight of the men in the round of 16 in the bottom half, had never been in the top 10. And I think kind of your peak ranking is a good indicator of your peak, your possible peak level, unless you're very young and just haven't had a chance to get to that level. And that just gives you a taste of sort of the 250 or 500 nature of the mix of players, which isn't to say we haven't seen some great matches, including I, I thought the Corey Anderson match was a very high level and could have gone five sets. But it, it just doesn't look like the roster of names you'd expect, especially in the second week, competing for the quarterfinals, semifinals, final. Um, and then also in terms of the big names in the women's side, you had a lot of the top names lose early. Simona Halep had the worst possible draw of an unseated player. She got Maria Sharapova in the first round. They played a match that featured the star power and the quality to be a final, but it was in the first round and Sharapova won. So there goes Halep again, missing out on a close opportunity to reach number one. Then Kanta lost, Wozniacki lost early. Um, we had a lot of women coming into the tournament with the chance at number one, and a bunch of them lost early, including Svetlana Kuznetsova. And some of the ones who remained were all bunched in one part of the draw. So Muguruza lost to Kvitova, who then lost to Venus Williams, and any matchup between any of those three would have been worthy of a final, and especially the Williams-Kvitova match last night was terrific, but that only earned Williams a spot in the semis. So now the big story is, can Coco Vandaway and Madison Keys join Sloane Stevens and Venus Williams and make it an All-American semi? And on the men's side, you had... I've talked about the bottom half of the draw. In the top half, I think everyone assumed we'd finally see the Federer-Nadal meeting we've been waiting for for years here and come so close to Federer-Nadal need to each win one more match, but it wasn't obvious they were going to get this far. Federer had to survive two five-setters. Rafa twice lost the first set and once almost lost the first set. They both look like they're rounding into top form, and they both look like favorites to win their quarterfinals, although Federer has a tough one against El Potro. Uh, if they do meet, it will be yet another match on Arthur Ashe before the finals that will certainly feel like a final and may, may feel like more more than a final if they do meet in the semis on Friday. So, yeah, I think those are those have been the highlights of the the big names. I mean, there, there are plenty of other players I could talk about, like Diego Schwartzman, 5'7", making the quarters, but I think I've gone on enough. Yeah, that's a great story. I mean, Schwartzman, I agree. Uh, usually we, I get sometimes questions from the audience that uh, – uh, you know, form the listenership for this uh, podcast. And question comes from Catherine in Sydney, Australia, and she asked me, and I'm going to direct the question to you. She thinks can uh, the young uh, Andre Rublev channel his inner Marat Safin and uh, pose a challenge or even get the better of uh, Rafael Nadal? Uh, your thoughts on Rublev? Have you tracked his progress, and what do you make of that? Yeah, I certainly think you could. I mean, I w- you could ask me, would anyone have a chance of beating anyone? And I would always say yes. I, I was dismissive of Tara Daniel, and he took the first set off Rafa and was up a break in the second. Granted, it turned around quickly, but I would never count out anyone against anyone. But more specifically on Rublev, I, I saw him, I think, a couple years ago when we qualifying, and it's, it's just immediately impressive. He's, there are some players who you have to watch them for a bit before you appreciate, okay, this is why this guy is in the top ten or could someday be in the top ten or number one. With him, you, you just appreciate right away all of his gifts. He's had some trouble at times with you know, managing his temper, which is just normal for a teenage player and is true of just about all of them, including Federer when he was a teenager. And most Russian players. <laughs> well, 
I, I think the the nationality. I mean, I, I get the Morassaf in comparison, but I, when you ask a player like who did you look up to, who, who are your best friends on tour, this is an international game. So I don't know how much that influences it. I think he just is who he is. But uh, I mean, there are plenty of hot-headed American teenagers too. Um, but but he was just clearly so so talented and so capable, and it's great to see him put it together. I think earlier this year we saw similar from Karin Kachinov. And with Rublev, you might guess with this open draw that he had an easy time of it getting getting this far. Maybe maybe the draw opened up for him, but he straight-setted Grigor Dimitrov, I believe, and then David Goffin, both right around the top ten, if not in the top ten. Goffin was a little injured, but Dimitrov was coming off a his first big title win at Cincinnati, straight sets over Kyrgios, and certainly looked like a favorite to reach the quarters against Rafa. So that was a great win for Rublev. Uh, I still doubt that he'll even take a set off Rafa, but I don't discount it at all. And you know, Nadal, Nadal's form, like Federer's, has wavered not just from match to match, but from set to set. So certainly anything could happen. Uh, I thought Rafa looked great in the first week of Wimbledon, and then he really struggled against Mueller, especially on break points, and lost in the fourth round. So anything can happen, um, but I, I don't think this is yet Rublev's year. I also think he's got lots of years ahead of him. Yeah, by the time I get to publish this uh, conversation, this match would be close to over or still going on. So, yeah, good thoughts. Let's uh, uh, let's talk about uh, USDA scheduling. I know next gen is, uh, you know, and product placement is part of the business. And with the depleted bottom half, uh, Danish Shapovalov got a lot of cash time. I want your opinion. Is that good for the kid? I know it's the business. You want to promote the next generation. But is it too much pressure and too much focus? Uh, the USTA used him uh, on all ash matches this year. Just the fact you're saying all ash matches reminds us that he, he won a few and wasn't the favorite, at least in a couple, especially against Sangha. And he won that one frighteningly easily. So... I think it's easier to answer now. If you'd asked me at the beginning of the tournament, would it, would it be good to put him on Ash? I really wouldn't have a good answer for you. But this is a guy who a month ago made it to the semis in Montreal, his, his home tournament. And so clearly he was not only featured there, but being supported in a, in a major way by fans, you know, thousands of them turning out to see him beat Nadal and make that run. And he certainly did not seem to shrink from that. I, I don't know that all players are, are of the same makeup. I, I also think the Open, to some extent, at least hears the opinions of players. So I think if, if here his team felt very strongly he shouldn't be on Ash, then the Open would have at least heard about it and hopefully considered it. I've never, ever heard of a player of any age being upset they were on too big a court. I mean, sometimes there are courts that have idiosyncrasies in terms of the layout or the, the wind that players don't like. But otherwise... You know, Caroline Wozniacki complaining about Sharapova being on Ash when when it when it meant Wozniacki had a assignment on Court 17. Alex Zverev in D.C., another youngster like Rublev, a little older, begging to be put on center court even when the opponent he expected was knocked out and it was a lower profile matchup. Of course, for business reasons, the team around these players is going to want them to be on the biggest court possible, but. Even aside from that, I, I just think it's a self-selecting business. If you're getting to this stage in your career at that age, you've been on, you've been in some high-pressure moments. Maybe it wasn't thousands of people, but it was 
the biggest crowd you've ever faced at that level, including maybe people cheering against you, which wasn't happening enough with, very much with Chapo in, in New York, and you've managed to succeed, and that's why you're in this place. So, yeah, I I tend to think just about any player wants to be on the biggest court possible, and if they don't, that's probably something they need to work on, not the tournament. No, don't get me wrong. Maybe my, I didn't word my question right. I, I was just more worried from uh, Shapovalov's point of view. It's like the golden goose analogy on today's society we live in. Anything that's good, everybody wants the first hand, first claims on it. So I thought they could have just distributed his matches and just, you know, let him settle into the tournament. He delivered. But maybe in the long run, I think uh, they already uh, created a scenario where, you know, he has to live with this pressure. And uh, I personally think they could have, you know, distributed like a Luca Pui or someone else could have had a look in Ash because it was kind of a depleted field. But uh, I totally see where you're coming from and don't disagree much there. Uh, well, you know, again, neither of us knows, and, and this is a question I'd love to put to the USTA at some point. I, I don't know what metrics they're using, but there are all sorts of ways out there to just see who's registering with the public. And there's been lots of evidence, including stories from him himself, that the people in New York have just been approaching him and recognizing him. So, again, this is a chicken and egg thing, kind of like what we talked about at the beginning with putting a Federer press conference above live tennis with Madison Keys. But there does seem to be something about his game and his personality and his age and his story that electrifies people. And there are many different factors that tournaments decide using to decide where to put a player's match. But one of them has to be what is going to keep people in their seats and make them feel like they got their money's worth and deliver a great atmosphere for the TV product. And he consistently did that. So it's, it's hard to argue with too much. Okay, a couple more questions before I let you go. So, uh, one uh, common theme on the ATP this, has, this, this year has been the PR uh, used by players and, you know, some players who were once ranked and, you know, could easily enter these big paying draws. Uh, they enter these tournaments and they're, like, either not fully fit and they have withdrawn. And then a lot of criticism, even from the tennis fraternity, has been uh, they kind of deprive someone else of the deserving spot. But then, uh, even in American sports, a lot of guys, like, they go through these contracts and they come out being healthy and all of a sudden during the contract year, they sit on the bench because of injury. So uh, what is your take on this? Because someone like Terzanov, he probably won't be making money in tennis after this because he used all his PRs and collected close to 350000 and only won two main draw matches. And another example was Andrea Heather Maurer, if I'm saying the name right, Austrian who was once ranked in the top 100, came back and could not finish his match. So are we to sympathize with this, or at the same time, this is like workers' comp. ATP allows them to play, and they will use that to basically, you know, uh, put a livelihood for their family. Yeah, so just for any listeners, PR is protected ranking, and it's something that gives players making a a comeback a a chance to compete in tournaments that their actual ranking wouldn't allow for, but their ranking before injury would have. And... Tursunov was the subject of, a, I thought, a great story by Ben Rothenberg in the New York Times earlier this tournament, how he's made not just a living but a really good one by using his protected ranking really strategically to get into tournaments where even if he loses early, which he tends to, he he makes some good prize money. And, you know, it just this feels like a case where there's there's nothing to blame with the player. It, if there's something that needs to be fixed, it means incentives need to change in the sport. I, I think that's true in, in many cases in life where we think something is off, that it, it's not that anyone is making an irrational decision. It's that the, the incentives in front of them 
are pushing them to a decision that maybe we don't like, and that means we need to change the incentives. As you say, it's a pretty brutal sport financially for players. I mean, we can look at their career earnings and maybe think, okay, they, they did okay. I think Tursnow would probably be in that category. I don't have his earnings in front of me. But even if that's the case, they are spending an enormous amount of money in the peak of their careers on travel, on coaching, on yeah. treatment. And that's also not accounting for all the money that either their, their family spent or their federation spent or came out of their own savings just to get to the point where they could start earning enough money to pay for all the things I just described. Uh, there's no real you know, long-term pension plan or, or any guarantee of, of income after you're done playing, and you've been devoting your whole life to this pursuit. So unless you can get a high-paying job that takes advantage of your expertise in tennis, what do you do? Um, so I, I would never really begrudge a player playing within the rules in order to maximize their their revenue. If I were advising a player, that's what I would generally advise them to do with an eye toward their long-term revenue. So if a player thinks, yeah, I could make more money, money entering the U.S. Open, but I know I can't last best of five, but I could use that protected ranking to get into a 250 that maybe I know generally has a weak draw, and then, you know, use that those ranking points to propel me higher in the rankings and eventually make more money total, uh, maybe that's a better decision. But, you know, if, if, if the Open feels or if tournaments feel in general like they uh, are being hurt by players entering in that way, I hope they don't do something that overall penalizes players, but they can change the incentives for players. And maybe there, there should be some incentive for players to retire uh, maybe you know they can they can keep all the money they would have gotten if they'd maximized their protected ranking without taking the berth. So the tournaments don't have to pay that money out. And if somebody is choosing to make that decision, it means they probably weren't going to deliver much value to the tournaments by showing up. Uh, so you know that's just one example. I, I think people can come up with better ideas than the ones I can in, in a couple of seconds. But there there are certainly possible options for incentivizing people to only show up for tournaments where they intend to compete and intend to try to win. But until then, yeah, go, go ahead and, and make your money if you can. There was a great quote at the end of that story where Ernest Golbis didn't succeed in using his protected ranking as strategically as Tursunov, and he basically said, well, I'm not as smart as him. <laughs> I, I, I would have, but I'm just not as smart as him. No, I personally think it's a great incentive. I have nothing against it because it's, to me it's just like, an injury at work that alters your career and the window, uh, you know, for a tennis player or any athlete is very smaller than, you know, uh, what we have in regular professional careers. Uh, I'm all for it. If they want to use it and get back, That's uh, I think that's the least the sport can do, do for them. Maybe, like you said, they can form a better, uh, more transparent system so, you know, people are just not angry when they see these kind of results, but uh, I think it's, uh, it's all fair. I, I think that one of the reasons that's controversial, and Ben mentioned this in the story, is that it's th th there's a tension right now in the sport around the, the players being able to play at older and older ages. And I generally think it's great, and we talked about how great it is for the sport that we've got the Williams sisters still and, and Federer and Nadal. But it does raise the question, is there room, if, the, if there isn't a growth in the number of tournaments and basically this, the number of people who can be in the top of the rankings and actually make it to those big tournaments, and yet people are playing longer and longer, is there room for a young player who's not 
going to just rise in meteoric fashion through the rankings to, to work their way into a really good pro career. There are people who are late bloomers we might never discover. So I think one of the concerns is maybe protected ranking is really useful if someone is 22, 23, and then has a big setback and, and their career isn't over. But if it means someone in their 30s uses it just as a way to make one more go around the tour and, and get one more collection of cash, again, that might be the right decision for them, but that's potentially squeezing out a young player who will just never get a chance to compete but, at that level and see what uh, they can do. Uh, let me intervene. Isn't the clause uh, the ranking is the uh, PR is given when someone was ranked, say, in a top 100? Uh, if someone who was ranked 250 and got injured, they cannot use that because uh, with that ranking, when they got injured, they were not eligible for main draws anyway. So Sorry, we're talking. I think we're, I think you're confusing two two things I'm referring to. I'm I'm saying that the older player, not that the the older player having the protected ranking and therefore taking a spot. I'm not saying they're taking a spot from a younger player with a protected ranking. I'm just saying they're taking a spot. So whoever would have been next in off the entry list would not get in, and often that's a younger player who needs chances to play in big tournaments to make money, get ranking points, get competition at that level. There's an argument that maybe protected ranking should only be for younger players, different younger players, ones like you say in the top 100, that would limit the total number of players with protected rankings and leave more openings for younger players, whatever their ranking, to have a chance to enter tournaments. All right, so let's conclude this by asking you the question that you've been asking in your podcast. Who do you see uh, as the two winners uh, of the both uh, women's and men's edition of uh, this year's U.S. Open, and who are the two finalists, in your opinion? Yep, I was expecting this one. Uh, it's a good question. It, it's always a funny question because your answer could be out of date almost as soon as you say it. It's an ongoing <laughs> tournament, and people lose. But I'm going to choose fairly safe picks, Federer over Anderson. Don't feel that confident about Federer. I think he could lose to Del Potro or Nadal. I'd be surprised if he lost to Rublev. And Venus over Pliskova. Uh, again, you know, probably not feeling even 50% on either of those picks, but those are mine now. What are yours right now? Uh, mine are Federer and uh, Pliskova. Over. Uh Federer over Anderson and uh, Fishkova over Stonesview. Those would all be exciting finals. Yep, and like you said, you know, you can pretty much look very off by the time the results are there and say what were you thinking. Yep. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Carl, thanks for the chat. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure everybody who listens to this podcast will enjoy this conversation. Uh, looking forward to do this maybe some other time. Yeah, and for those of you who can't get enough, even with all the great shows on Tennis with an Accent, uh, check out my podcast, 30 Love. I've been bringing some episodes from the U.S. Open. Yeah, and, and unlike our podcast, uh, Carl is, you know, articulate enough in his thoughts. He keeps in the 30 minutes, so he won't take too much of your time. That's a great <laughs> podcast. I've been listening to it myself. Thank you. Thanks.